Morning, Christ Church. Starting a new series today. I'm really excited about it. We're going into the Gospel of Matthew, and I prefaced this a little bit last week, telling you what was coming, and today we're going to kick it off. And um, today's going to be a little bit different than usual, because I'm going to set the stage for entering the book as a whole, and we're going to kind of fly over the Gospel from a bird's eye view and look at the big structure and the big themes, and we're going to look a little bit at who's Matthew and who's his original audience and what's his purpose in writing them. It's kind of set the stage more than uh, dive into verse by verse, beginning with chapter one, verse one. Although we're going to end today by dipping in to the very beginning, first few verses, as we just heard read. And good job on pronunciation, all those, Herb. I was wondering how that was going to go. I, um, I also want to encourage you as we get into Matthew, we're going to be in Matthew for the next year. Uh, we'll take some breaks. We'll have some one-offs of some different sermons or maybe an Advent sermon um, a series for a mini-series, but we're going to be in Matthew for the next year. And I personally am really excited um, in my own life and journey through this, the ways that I'm being intentional about looking at Jesus afresh. I'm wanting this year for me to be a year of encountering Jesus all over again. Um, and that'll happen through being in Matthew. But um, I'm going to do some things, and you might want to do something similar, uh, is go back and watch The Chosen. I started it. I haven't finished all the seasons. I'm going to go back with the first episode and watch The Chosen again. Um, I'm going to see what the Bible Project has to say about some of these. They've got an overview on the whole book of Matthew. They've got a a video on just the Sermon on the Mount, or you might want to dip in there. And so some of these other resources that you might want to access where we just spend this year uh, looking again afresh at who Jesus is. So think of today, not so much as your standard kind of sermon, but more like you're going to class today. And um, we're teaching a class that sets up the, the teaching that sets up the preaching, if you will. Uh, the context that shows us how to enter into the text over the weeks to come. The Gospel of Matthew is the most popular of the four Gospels. You just kind of do an, even an informal survey, you'll probably find that. We get some of Jesus' most famous teachings here, things that are known not only like in the church, but have become phrases culturally, things like, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, do not be anxious about tomorrow, let the children Come to me, or some of the most famous verses like, Go and make disciples of all nations, the Great Commission, the Lord's Prayer that we pray every week. There's a version in Luke, but the one that churches everywhere all the time are always praying is, or 90% of the time, it's Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer that we are praying when we pray that every week. So you, you find these references all throughout um, discipleship and Christian life. People are most familiar with Matthew's gospel, and even in the early church, it was consistently placed in the list that would circulate among the early church, the, the first generations. They would have a list of the documents, the books that were the authentic, authoritative, what later became called the canon, but this list of authoritative, authentic documents that get passed around of this is the story of Jesus or these are the books or the letters that are the authoritative, authentic ones to read as the church. And they would be listed, and Matthew would always be listed first. Not because of chronological reasons or that it was the first thing written, but it just kind of had primacy of place. 
in people's imagination and the discipleship of the church. And you read the church fathers, you realize how much they reference Matthew, and it was, um, it was the most commonly used, referenced, read gospel of the early church in those early Christian communities. I'm going to say more about that in a minute. First, a little bit about the author. Let's talk about Matthew. Matthew was an eyewitness of everything he's writing about. He was a disciple and follower of Jesus. Now, that, that's not the case with all four gospels. Matthew and John were both disciples who traveled and heard and walked with him and were sent out when Jesus sent out the disciples. Mark and Luke had oversight of eyewitnesses of their accounts, verifying everything. And the generation that was still alive as they were putting it together saying, no, that's not right. But these two gospels and Matthew that we're looking at, he himself was there with Jesus, firsthand experience. He was a tax collector, which most people despised. Not just because they associate him with collecting their funds, but he was collecting taxes for Herod Antipas, who ruled the area, that area of Galilee, on behalf of the Roman Empire. They were the overlord occupiers, and he, a Jewish man, was working for them. And so he was despised. Uh, not only did people not want to give their money away to anybody, but especially to their overlord. And so uh, it, it, to come from that perspective, you know how when you read anything by anybody, a, an article, a, a, a book, right, when you know something about the author's background and where they've come from, it adds something to how you read what you are, uh, what you're encountering in the text. And so we see this radical conversion of Matthew who's telling us about this Jesus. He moved from the service, in other words, of one king, King Herod, into the service of what he became convinced was the one true king and kingdom that deserved his entire allegiance. When Jesus called him, Matthew was at that moment sitting in a tax collector's booth. Chapter 9 gives us that little detail. He was, it's literally where he was when Jesus called him. Quite a juxtaposition, quite a symbolic moment of shifting of allegiances from the tax collector's booth to the king of kings who comes and invites him into the service of a different kingdom. And then he leaves us this account of the king that he loved and walked with and followed. So after Jesus sent the Holy Spirit and the church was born, people would tell stories. They would tell stories about Jesus and his teachings, and that first generation would pass these along, and it was an oral tradition. And for the next 50 years or so, um, 30 to 50 years, it would pass around because all the people who were with Jesus, they were all, they were alive. They were still, the, the eyewitnesses were there. And, but as the generation who I, were eyewitnesses and could firsthand kind of recount these stories, as they began to age, they began to put it down for the next generation. And so you have then the beginning of the writing of the Gospels, uh, anywhere from 30 to 50 years after Jesus. Around Matthew itself, most people date it to around the 60s or the 80s AD, 60s to 80s AD in that range. And again, the first generation of the church started to record these things in writing at that time. So Matthew, he would have been an older man by now. He gathered these writings and sayings of Jesus and he he. We have this reference from a man named Papias, which was around 110 AD. He was one of the first bishops, 
And Papias, around 110 AD, is the first evidence we have that the gospel of Matthew existed because he makes reference. We have a manuscript of some writing by Papias, and he makes reference to it. And in that, he tells a little bit about how Matthew had gathered the sayings of Jesus and these stories from some other people and his own experiences, and then he arranged them. And so he was kind of a masterful arranger of all of these texts and all of these stories, his own and others. And Papias tells us that he wrote it in Hebrew or a dialect of Hebrew, which was probably Aramaic. Aramaic was, uh, was a dialect of Hebrew that the Jewish people spoke, kind of like, you know, in the past century or two, Yiddish um, is kind of a dialect of the Jewish people. Um, it, so he, it was originally written apparently in Hebrew Aramaic, but would have very quickly been translated into Greek uh, for wide distribution and to move beyond the Jewish community in, in terms of accessibility to it. Papias wrote this. He said, quote, Matthew compiled the sayings of Jesus in the Hebrew dialect and everyone interpreted them according to the ability of each. Now, this reference to Matthew originally writing it in a Hebrew dialect tells us something about now his audience. Who's he writing for? And that's always something important to know when you're reading anything. Uh, who's the audience? If you're writing anything, who's your audience? But in this case, who is his audience? Who's he primarily writing for in that moment? And it was primarily a Jewish audience that he's writing for. We have all kinds of evidence for this in the Gospel of Matthew were many Gentile believers around uh, the 60s to 80s AD, but Matthew had the Jewish people especially in view as he put this gospel account together. He put it together in a way that shows them that this is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. So a, a community that's steeped in the story of the Old Testament, awaiting a Messiah, is going to need to hear about who this Messiah is, kind of embedded in the language and story that they have held, and that story out of which they've been looking for the Messiah to come. And so there's a special emphasis to show that this Messiah is that guy that you've been waiting for. So there's lots of references in the Gospel of Matthew to Abraham and Moses and the Exodus and all kinds of uh, scripture references where he's quoting from the Old Testament. His intended audience was probably an urban church made mostly of educated Jews. And again, scholars have kind of surmised this, reading his level, the, the kind of the level of sophistication in his presentation and the way he writes is uh, there's kind of an assumption that people are going to be literate and have some level of education uh, to be able to follow his, his structure and what he's doing there. But while these commu this community was convinced, we, we think they were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, when Matthew's writing to that Jewish community, he was not trying to persuade people who were completely non-believing non Jews who didn't believe in Jesus the Messiah, and he's trying to persuade them but he is, he's, has a community that is persuaded, but they're cloudy in their thinking. And there's competing ideas about Jesus. 
And there's different understandings of what his teachings mean and, how, and what his way of the kingdom is in relation to the law that they had been taught. And so Matthew is clarifying for people who probably already see Jesus as the Messiah, but are very unformed and unshaped and need a lot of discipleship. And so this becomes a discipleship manual for the Jewish community. And in fact, as it moves into Greek and beyond the Jewish community, it becomes a discipleship manual for the early church. It was utilized that way in the church. And the purpose was to align their very kind of diverse ideas with the reality of who Jesus truly was and align their ideas of what it meant to walk with God with their perspective on the law and the ways that they had understood the covenant in the Old Testament to what it means to walk with Jesus in this way that he's teaching and what he has to say about life in the kingdom. So Matthew portrays Jesus as the new Moses. We're going to look at something in, in a little bit of detail today that kind of shows how Jesus is the new Moses, teaching a, a new Torah. The Torah is also referred to as the Pentateuch. You might have, that word penta means five. You might be familiar with that. The first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, those first five books are often called the Torah. And so Matthew is constructed, the whole way he puts it together is like uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, like a new Torah, a new Pentateuch. And he's saying, here is the new teaching for you. He often cites Hebrew scriptures and refers to its characters. There are 60 Old Testament quotations, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew. 60. And compare that with in Mark and Luke, you have about half that, about 30. And then in John, you have half that, only about 15. But Matthew has this heavy, heavy reference to the Old Testament. Now, let me pause at this point and say some of these background details can feel perhaps dry or irrelevant until you start to ask the questions, why? Why is he doing what he's doing? Why does it matter how many Old Testament references there are or what language it was originally written in? And all these other kinds of background informations. And here's the point, and this is where it starts to drive home. Matthew is saying to his readers, you know, that those, you know those promises that God made to Abraham? Those promises he made long ago, the promises he made to Moses. You know, all those things that you have been reading about and teaching your children and your grandchildren, all of those promises, God keeps his promises. God is still alive and active and moving. He has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten the promises he made to your ancestors. That's what's behind all of this uh, understanding of the context and the background of the gospel of Matthew. He's actively at work doing what he said. So Matthew puts Jesus squarely in continuity with the story of the Jewish people in order to say to them, God is still active right now for you, for us. And we can say that today in 2023. All right, now let's turn and look at some of the overarching themes and structures. And um, here's a slide that is going to um, kind of piece this together. So I'm basically, for the next stretch, I'm going to teach through this slide as we build a little bit. So what you have is, at the beginning, the introduction, 
the first four chapters that's often called the birth narrative, and it often, it's a little bit beyond. It's like birth and childhood, um, some of his youth, up until we get into these blocks of teachings. So the early life of Jesus is the introduction, and then the conclusion, of course, is the passion of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus. In between those two, you have these five blocks of teachings from chapters 5 to 25. Matthew has skillfully arranged that material into five distinct blocks. Why five? You remember what I said about the new Torah? Jesus is saying, I am the new Moses. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the one who carries those promises into the present. This, these five blocks of ten- teachings then kind of have this emphasis on this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And right there, we get into one of the major themes of the gospel of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you see that kingdom of heaven, and if you've seen kingdom of God language, I'm sure you have if you read the other gospels, Matthew prefers the language kingdom of heaven. Other gospel writers, kingdom of God. We're not talking about two different things with those phrases. But kingdom of heaven language would have been familiar language to his Jewish audience. So he's connecting with the people that he's writing to with that language of the kingdom of heaven. It also does have some nuances and resonances that over the course of this next year, as we look at what the kingdom of heaven is like and all the parables that begin with, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And then he tells a parable. And so we're going to get to see like really... Lots of pictures of what this kingdom looks like. But that's a major theme of the gospel of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. So let's go and look at the first block. Um, So what we have in chapters 5 to 7, that's the first major block of teaching. And perhaps the most famous section of the gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. That's where the Beatitudes are and the teachings of the Sermon there, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And you might title this the ethics of the kingdom, the way that we live as a community with each other and in relation to this world. How do we live in light of the kingdom of heaven? Chapters 5 to 7 show us that way. So I've got up in the yellow blocks up there kind of the stories of Jesus that in between these chapters, in between 5 to 7, so 8 and 9... And then after chapter 10, chapters 11 and 12, and so on, are all stories of Jesus. And this is the narrative. This is like a novel, you know, where, so he structures this with these five blocks, and each block you'll have a teaching and then narrative, like you're reading a book, a novel. And then the novel and the pacing and the movement, the geography and the character development, all that will pause and teach what, there will be a speech by Jesus. And then the movement starts happening, and Jesus is on the move again, and he's going places, he's doing things, he's encountering people, and then he'll pause, and there'll be a speech by Jesus. So again, very carefully arranged this way. And if you look underneath those those five blocks, each of these blocks of teachings end with a a version of this phrase. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went on from there, and da-da-da-da-da. And you, you can find it. In every single one of those five, and it's almost identical language, and it shows just how intentional Matthew is about presenting these different blocks. All right, let's go to the next one. 
Chapter 10, then, is the, the teaching, the speech, is the commissioning of the 12. And you might call, so he has a little speech there that he gives them as he commissions them. And you could call this the mission of the kingdom of heaven. Let's go to chapter 13. Here's the parables. Now, there are other parables outside of chapter 13, but chapter 13 is just chock full of a bunch of parables. And it's like the concentration of the parables. Some of the parables will come up like on the way in the midst of a story while Jesus is going somewhere and he has an encounter and he, he shares another parable. But this is really the block and the center of the parables. And this is the nature of the kingdom. Like what's the kingdom like? And that's what he's trying to teach with the parables. Let's go to the next one. Community instruction, the governance of the kingdom. And if you're familiar with Matthew 18, that has to do with conflict in the community and how do you resolve conflict uh, when it arises within the community. And then chapters 23 to 25, it's the Olivet Discourse and the future of the kingdom. And here he begins to talk as he approaches the cross and he knows the end is near and the death and resurrection and, and the great commission of the disciples. He's saying, here's what you can expect. Here's what's coming so this graphic captures two of the major overarching themes of Matthew's presentation of Jesus and the gospel. First of all, Matthew, Matthew's Jesus is a king. We saw all the kingdom emphasis here in these five blocks. As a discipleship manual, this, shape, uh, this shapes the followers of Jesus to give their allegiance to this king and kingdom. And he is explicit in chapter 17 that what he wants to see happen is that these followers would give their allegiance to Jesus, the king of kings, and not, quote, and this is from chapter 17, not the kings of the earth. And that's something that was just as it is today. It was very real then. King Herod and the kings of the day and the kings of the earth and people getting caught up in what was going on with this or that ruler on the earth. And he was saying, put your allegiance instead over here to the king of kings and the ways of this kingdom. Be discipled, be shaped in the ways, in the nature of this kingdom, in the ethics of this kingdom. So Jesus is a king, and that's a major theme of the whole gospel of Matthew. He's often called, in fact, the son of David. You'll see that language in David more than, more than in, in Matthew, more than other gospels. Son of David. Why is that? Why is he called son of David? He's not the son of David. He's multiple generations down from David. But he is an ancestor, and what he's saying, the reference to son of David is a way to evoke royalty, to communicate Jesus's royalty, but to say he's even greater. The greatest king in the history of Israel, King David, he's even greater than King David. And then the other major theme about Jesus, Matthew's Jesus is a king. He's also a rabbi. He's presented as a teacher. A rabbi simply means teacher, somewhat a recognized teacher in the Jewish community. And so he's presented to his Jewish audience as, this is a rabbi whose teachings you can trust and you can follow. But he's not only a teacher who gives these wise principles to live by. Like, here's the truth. Here's the teacher. 
And the teacher is teaching about this truth. He's not only uh, teaching principles to live by, though there are principles that he is teaching, but it is much more than that. And ultimate, in a greater sense than that, Jesus himself embodies the wisdom. Do you get the difference? He's not pointing to the, this body of wisdom over here and these principles and saying, follow those ideas, these abstract principles and this body of collected ideas. That's the, the, the philosophy of life to live by. He, he himself is wisdom. And the very way that he is with people and the way he acts with them, the way he lives among them, people learn wisdom by his presence and by encountering him. In fact, Matthew presents Jesus to us as, in the beginning, in the birth story, as Emmanuel, God with us, wisdom embodied. He is the king. He is wisdom itself. He is the one who teaches us like the great rabbi. All right, so that's enough background for today. So I'm going to conclude now with, um, we're just going to dip our toes into Matthew 1 today, just a little bit. And um, you heard the genealogy read in the gospel, and there's all this list of names and this kind of unique way of arranging all of these names, like so-and-so begot so-and-so, or so-and-so was the father. It depends on the translation you have. But it begins this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. There's a, already, you can hear he's speaking to his Jewish audience. The son of David, the son of Abraham. So this is the guy in continuity with everything you've been waiting for, everything you've been hoping for. He's here, and let me tell you about him. That's how he begins. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and then he goes through that list. As he goes through the list, um, you'll, you'll notice that the names are arranged. If you read, we did not do the entire genealogy. I thought I'd spare you that this morning. Uh, in the gospel reading, um, but there is like there's a, two pages of name after name after name after name. But you can go in if you read through that. What you'll find is that they're arranged in these three blocks. These blocks of names are from Abraham to David, and then the generations from David to the exile in Babylon, and then the generations from the exile in Babylon to Jesus. And there are 14 generations in each. Now Matthew's point. And what he's, the way he's arranging this is not to do it kind of like he's an ancestry researcher who's recording the details of specific history. There's a, some sty, it's a stylized approach. There are some generations missing in here. And this is, this, is like, this is not a literal kind of every single name that goes from every person all the way back is included. But it's a way to kind of take this representative sample in a stylized way and show these three blocks as a way of saying Jesus is connected to the Abraham story, to the David story, to the exile and post-exilic story. This Messiah that we've been waiting for in each of these eras, here he is. And so then he presents, you know, he ends with Jesus in talking about um, his birth, his faithfulness, though, through every generation is the key. Now, if you read it closely, you'll notice some things that break pattern. It appears to be a patriarchal list. 
So you get, for example, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Sarah, whose mother was Tamar. This breaks the pattern before it goes. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. So there are these moments that are punctuated, and the fact that there's only a handful of them actually is a technique to highlight them and to, to bring attention to them and, and, it, and to say this is actually one of the main points is you kind of get lulled into this da 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 and then something jumps out and you say, oh, Matthew's making a point here. And what is the point that he's making as he includes these several women like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. Well, one thing is they all have in common is that they're all Gentiles. And so this story that is to the Jewish people, he's making a point even in the genealogy, and he's going to make this point throughout Matthew, and then at the end, the Great Commission, go to all nations and proclaim this gospel. Teach everybody this manual of discipleship that I'm giving you. Teach it to everybody, all people's. Even in the genealogy, he is teaching and making this point. These three women are all Gentiles. He's saying everybody is included here. This is a global gospel. And this global gospel is prefigured in the story all along, going back even to Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. In fact, one of the women mentioned Rahab was a prostituted woman. He's not trying to sanitize this story. Far from it, he actually wants to celebrate the fact that everyone is in on this grace. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from. Every single person matters to God no matter what. Now, who knew you could read a genealogy and get the gospel like that? But that's part of what Matthew's doing even in the writing of the genealogy. He's starting to proclaim the gospel that breaks down all dividing lines, the gospel that's good news for the Jewish people, good news for the vulnerable, good news for the least of these. Where's he going to refer to that? Chapter 25, the least of these. Good news for all nations, Matthew 28. Even the genealogy proclaims the prodigious love of God, the trustworthy character of a God who keeps his promises to set us free, to make all things new. And it's happening right here in this person, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of Kings, the rabbi. Now, after so many instances of this active voice, um, in some translations it will be begot, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot. Uh, and there's a, in the original, there's kind of like this active verb of this, uh, this voice of how this happens, there comes at the very end a single example then of a passive voice. And it says in verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Now, this is the fourth woman mentioned. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Joseph is described here now as the husband of Mary, not Mary the wife 
of Joseph. So again, it breaks pattern. And it signals to the reader, something's happening here. Something breaking, something is breaking the mold here. And then it is from Mary, the mother of Jesus, who comes Jesus, the Messiah. And then he launches into the story of the gospel. And we're going to talk some more about what is a gospel. What is the gospel? What is... When we call it the gospel of Matthew, what do we mean by that? Is that a, genre, a literary genre, the gospel of? Um, what, what are we referring to? But here, he has already begun to teach and preach the gospel. And up until then, all these men took an active part, you know, and, it, and, and then we shift into this passive voice, and God is now taking the reins, and he's saying, I'm working with Mary, and through Mary, and through this conception by the Holy Spirit, it's not man's actions anymore. It is the action of God in partnership with Mary that this Messiah will be born into the world, the saving history of his people is now coming to its culmination. So I want to pray for us that throughout this journey over the next year that our allegiance will be more and more transferred to the King of Kings. I want to pray that through this that we will encounter the living God in the person of Jesus Christ, that we will, in his embodied wisdom, that as we are near to him, we will become wise like him, that as we are near him as the King of Kings, that our hearts will find their truest affections and highest hopes uh, addressed in him, and that we will be truly set free, liberated by the reign of this king and the way that he reigns. Let's begin now praying that together. Jesus, would you come? Would you come and reveal yourself to us, you, the living word, which we long to know and see face to face. You are the true word. You are the living word. But for now, we have these written words that help us to access you. Would you make them a window for us, Lord, that we could see you just a little bit clearer, that we could encounter you in a little bit more uh, felt, experienced, transformative way? We want to know you as king and follow you as king and worship you as king, and we want, we want to be wise. We want to walk in your ways. We want the Sermon on the Mount, which comes out of your very person and being. We want the Sermon on the Mount to be in our very person and being, become like second nature to us. But we want to fall in love with you. Lord, I pray that anybody of us who are here today and actually for the weeks to come, the year to come, who does not know you, never encountered you, would encounter you and know your great love and respond to you with the, their own love, their own affections, their own trust. Lord, for others of us, would you renew our love? Would you remind us of our first love? May we see you like we've not seen you before. Would you reveal to us something, Lord, that each of us 
throughout this journey needs to know, needs to hear, needs to become. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.